when uh, St. Augustine was around, in order to become a member in the church, you were expected to learn all of the Psalms by heart. So you could at least learn that one. It would do your soul good. It's great. Uh, if you are a visitor, uh, welcome here. And to the smart Alex who quipped and welcomed me as a visitor, um, it's nice to be back, uh, as Arnie would say. Um, <clears throat> I'm, it's a privilege to come again and to share God's word. And this evening we've got uh, Joe Barnard. And if you've never heard Joe, I, I would strongly encourage you to come and hear God's word this evening at six o'clock. And if you also uh, haven't looked at the St. Peter's website, please do so because there's a wonderful testimony there from uh, Nina Goldthorpe, uh, who's uh, worships with us here in the evenings. And Nina is, uh, is a widower of the Piper Alpha disaster, which we remembered this week as well. Now we're going to turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going through the book of Romans. And uh, I'll read it in a moment, but I want, first of all, just simply to ask why we are here. Um, I have a wedding this afternoon. That's why I'm wearing a tie. I've not been reformed. Those of you who saw great hope, Mr. Ellis is smiling there. He's just saying, get the jacket and you'll be there. Uh, I just feel bad because I wore a tie today and Sinclair's not here, so I'll have to do it again next week. Um, but I have a wedding this afternoon and uh, a couple, middle-aged couple who are getting married and um, the whole family network, nobody really goes to church. And why would they go to church? Why are you here? What, I, I feel a great burden in this because I feel that what we've got here is absolutely for everyone in Dundee. Our American friends are here with uh, Laura and Andy and Kyrene and all the, the Charleston folks, and they're seeking to communicate the good news to the people in Charleston, and uh, I think that is hugely significant and hugely important. But what would you say to your friend, to your neighbor, to your family, to kind of get them to come here? You really, really need to come and hear this. You really, really, really need to see this. And so we as Christians, I think, need to grasp the wonder of the gospel and its appropriateness for everyone. And we need to pray that God would, that people would come, that here is medicine for people. There is a famine in our city of hearing the word of the Lord. And we long for that famine to be ended. Now we are enormously thankful as Will was praying for what God is doing in this congregation. And it's wonderful. Uh, some of you may be here for the first time. I met someone last week who's just started coming. And that's fantastic. It's great. Because you're, you're hearing the very words of life. And yet sometimes I think when we, we come to church, I wonder what we hear. Because maybe, maybe we interpret things too much through our feelings. We don't feel good, so we just hear bad stuff. We, we, we almost sometimes hear what we, we want to hear rather than actually listening to what God is saying. Sometimes we hear meaningless truisms. I hope not from this pulpit, but you could do as well. All you need is love. Love, love, love. Well, what does that mean? 
Uh, I think our society is full of, of stuff like that that just means nothing. Or you may get condemnatory words. Every time I come, I just hear words that condemn me. Or a list of do's and don'ts. I don't need someone to tell me how to live. But the Bible tells us that God's words are life. And in, in, in a most amazing passage says that God's word goes into our life and it goes deeper, splitting soul and spirit asunder. So we need depth in our lives because we're always dealing at the superficial level and God's word comes in and deals with the depths. And I think this passage is part of that. Now we are going to, let me just read first of all from uh, chapter 7 verse 1, it's on page 1133, we'll put the words of the, of the text up in a moment, but we're actually going to look from verse 7, but let me just read from verse 1 of chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, that I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? The law in this context, as we saw last week, is the law of Moses. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now... By dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's a little bit complex, but it's really important to grasp this. Paul's saying, every one of us has law, and in this case he's referring to um, the law of Moses. But all of us have different laws in our lives. We're all under law. We think about what's right and wrong. There's the law of the state. There's the law of your house. In this house, we don't do that. There's the law within your own heart, often that condemns you. There's the laws in society. There's, you have law at work. You have certain standards at work. You have, certain, you have a job to do. You have certain ways that you are expected to behave. And if you don't fulfill that law, you could lose your job. But what Paul is dealing here with is something much, much deeper. The law in terms of our relationship to God. And what he's saying here was very radical for the Jews because he's saying you need to be freed from the law of Moses because it it just condemns you. You need to die to it. And he says when you have faith in Jesus, you then die to that law. You need to serve in the new way of the Spirit. We now serve in that new way. Now, that leads to so much misunderstanding that what Paul does in, I think, the rest of this chapter is deal with some of the misunderstandings that people have. But let me just say something about the law. Um, this, I picked this up from, uh, since Thanos is away back to Greece, from a great Greek preacher called Chrysostom, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly, uh, who said this in Greek, but I'll do it in English. Um, he, he talked about how people have diseased minds who exclude the law given by God to Moses from the scriptures. People say, ah, that doesn't matter anymore, that doesn't count. He says, no, 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 to think like that's a diseased mind. But he said there's a wrong way also. Jews so revere the law that although the time has come which annuls it, 
they still contend for the observance of all its contents contrary to the purpose of God. By the way, when you get a smart aleck atheist going, well, if you're against this, then why do you eat shellfish? Or why do you have woven clothes and so on? Thinking they're being clever, citing the Levitical law. The Levitical law has been annulled. And the Christian church has always taught that. So it's, it's annulled, says Chrysostom. But the church of God, avoiding the extreme of despising the law or seeking to obey it, has trodden the middle path and is neither induced on the one hand to place itself under its yoke, nor on the other does she tolerate it being slandered, but commends it, though its day is over because of its profitableness while its season lasted. So God gives us his law. He gives us his word. He gives us, and we have this in the Mosaic law. You have it, I think, in the rest of the Bible as well. But as we shall see, it's not enough. Let's read Romans chapter 7 from verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Now what's Paul doing here? Is he telling his own story? Yes, I think he is. Is he telling the story of Israel? Yes, I think he is. I think what he's doing here is telling the story of us all. And those of you who know your Bibles will see the obvious allusions to Genesis 2 and 3. The temptation of Adam and Eve. And it seems that it's always the same pattern. There's the age of innocence in paradise. Very innocent. Imagine um, a very, very young child, a baby. They are born with original sin, but they are very innocent. I mean, they are genuinely sweet. They wouldn't harm anyone. And then you get to the terrible twos. Or the really terrible threes. And don't wait till the teens. Because your sweet little baby is not going to be that perfect child. There's an age of innocence. And there's a command that comes. Which says, do not eat from the apple in the garden. And then sin springs to life and seizes the opportunity and... I think that is an allusion to the snake. I think that's an allusion to the devil. It's an allusion to this idea of of, uh, there's a command that God gives us and then the devil takes that opportunity to stir up the sin that is within us. So sin springs to life and the devil deceives him. As Eve was deceived, Paul is saying, I was deceived. And Paul's, in particular, his awakening to sin was due to the prohibition of coveting. So the law said, do not covet. And then sin seized the opportunity. God said, don't take. Don't, don't take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can, you can have everything else. Don't take that one. And the devil comes and says, well, why do you think God told you not to take that one? That one's the, really the best one. That's the best thing to have. And so she took it. And she ate. And Adam took it and ate. 
There was a false desire that was given to Adam and Eve. And I I want to suggest to you that what Paul is suggesting here is that's where every one of our problems lies. A false desire within us. Not a desire for God, but a desire for something else. And then sin brought death to Adam. And sin brought death to Paul. And sin brings death to us all. There is always the forbidden fruit. And the forbidden fruit often, if not always, appears more attractive. We're deceived. When we're told not to do something, it appears even more attractive again. It always has consequences. It always brings death. I suspect in a room this size, not the room the size, but the number of people who are here, there will be those who've had affairs. Christians are not immune from that. And uh, before you become a Christian, why not? But what, what causes an affair to be so attractive? Why is so much literature? Why are so many films are about that? Because it's the forbidden fruit. The Bible says, rejoice with the wife of your youth. Don't be drawn away. But it's that aspect of the forbidden fruit. And it's really fascinating how many times there's an affair and then when it results in divorce and then when they end up marrying each other that suddenly the attraction seems to have gone because the illegitimacy of it is removed. But it's not just that. There will be people here today who know absolutely, you know in your heart, you know it. You don't even need to be persuaded of it intellectually. But you know that when you go on the internet and you click on that image that it's wrong but you will still do it. Why will you still do it? Why do you take such risks? You do it on your office computer. You do it on your home computer. Why? Because it's the attraction. It's not just lust. It's the attraction of the illicit. Or money. Stealing. It's not just little children who are attracted to the idea of stealing. There can be a thrill in doing that. Or drugs. Why? What's the attraction of drugs? What's the attraction of, of getting blazing drunk? Now, there can be an attraction that comes from you're just so depressed, so fed up, that you, know, you want anything that will annul the pain, but there can also be an attraction which says, wow, this is daring. This is going against what society says. And so when something is forbidden, rather than us getting to a stage where we say okay it's um, we're going to obey that we're told not to do it we're not going to do it in fact what often happens as Paul points out is that we are more drawn to do that than we were before so in telling his own story Paul asked this question then he said well is the law sin if, if the law does this to us is the law am I saying the law is sinful is the law the cause of sin and death in fact He's reflecting a little bit what some psychologists in our culture or some psychoanalysis might say, get rid of guilt. You don't need religion because religion piles up with your guilt. Do whatever you want to do. Be free. Except, of course, nobody ever really, really means that. They don't want you just to walk into your, your, their house and help yourself to anything that they have. They do believe in some law. But they would say that religion piles on too much guilt and we'd all be better off without the law. Let's just do whatever we want. Well, Paul again, he doesn't say that. He says the law is good. It's holy, righteous, and good. He doesn't say that it's bad. 
And he tells us what the law does. And just look what it does. First of all, it reveals sin. He's already said this, chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And this is a difficult bit for bringing people into this church. Because you come into this church, you're going to hear God's word, and God's word is not going to tell you that you're lovely. And God's word is not going to tell you, listen, everything's fantastic. You just be who you are. God is not going to tell you that. And you, you will come here as a Christian, and you can be quite confident about where you are as a Christian. You're, you've not murdered, you've not had an affair, you don't watch pornography, you don't do any of the stuff that I've just said. And yet when God's word is opened, it convicts you and it convicts me as much as it convicts people who may be regarded as more openly sinful because God's law goes very, very deep. See, notice what Paul says. He said, I was alive without the law. What does he mean? What he means is this. I thought I was righteous. I thought I was good. There's nobody as righteous as Paul. Nobody as good as Paul. And then the law came, the very, very law which he was there to defend and put forward, and it, it convicted him. In his case, he mentions coveting. But we know some of the things that Paul did. We know that he stood at the death of Stephen, who was being stoned to death for believing in Jesus, and he held the coats as people threw rocks. Don't glamorize this. As they threw rocks on a man until he bled to death. And Saul stood there, approved, clapping, cheering, rejoicing that this was what was happening. And God worked in his life, in his heart, so that in the old King James Version, when it talks about, he's talking about his conversion, and uh, Jesus saying to him, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I, I, I love that, that version because he's saying look at the pricks in his own heart the, the 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 pangs of conscience the guilt that he was feeling and Paul was just he dug deep he went you know he he, he wasn't going to back off he, he went after the Christians even more until Jesus directly intervened in his life and then he was blind and yet he could see and and he, he was taken and eventually even healed of that physical blindness but he saw Christ and became blind because Paul knew that in his heart he thought he was righteous and the law came and he could see that he wasn't. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus talks about, in fact, the whole Matthew 5, he talks about, it, you've heard it said, do not cover it. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. You've heard it said, do not murder. And in Matthew 5.21, he talks about, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I'm telling you, if you even are angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed this. So you're a murderer. Because I know there isn't a single person here who hasn't been angry unjustly with your brother or sister. By the standard of Jesus. It's funny, isn't it? We go, oh, I, I don't believe in the Old Testament God because he's too harsh. Whoa, but compared with Jesus, it's very, Jesus' standard is unbelievably high. And Jesus says, you know that law? That law was just to show you what your heart is. The law was to show you how bad you are. So you can imagine... In our culture, that's not a message. Uh, come to church and hear how bad you are. I don't want to hear that. I want to be told how good I am. I'm sorry. You, do, you need to hear it. You know, it, it's a little bit like having a scan in hospital. 
Nobody wants to go and have a scan in hospital in case they've got cancer. But what if you have cancer? Then the scan will show you. And God's law, as it comes to us, it's a relief when, when God speaks to us and shows us our sin and doesn't leave us in it. But there's more that the law does. Because he says the law provokes sin. And he uses a word here that carries this idea of it's a forward base. It's, it, it's, it's, it's directly provocative to us. And it's back to the forbidden fruit. And it's back to Augustine stealing the pears. He says this, I stole them not because I was hungry, but my desire was not to enjoy, was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing what was wrong. It is natural for human beings to want things when it is brought to attention that certain things which we want are forbidden by law, they become even more attractive. And Paul says, the law doesn't cause that, but the law stirs it up. It's as though you've got a fire and the embers have all died down, and then someone comes along and pokes it, and they they flame up again. And he says, the problem here is not the law, the problem is the sin that is in our own hearts because the sin twists the law and it deceives. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. By the way, 2 Corinthians 11.3 is written to Christians and Paul's saying, Christians, I, I'm concerned that you might be led astray by your, from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ just as Eve was deceived. So this temptation to sin is still there for Christians. We are not immune from that at all. In fact, we may be stirred up even more. The law condemns sin, but it does not create sin. It's not sinful. It's not responsible for sin. The law is holy, righteous, and good because it exposes sin. I am the Lord your God, Leviticus 11.45, who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. And... If you are honest, there isn't a single Christian here who will turn around and say, I am holy as God is holy. In fact, we have great difficulty when we sing the Psalms. Occasionally we'll sing a Psalm which says, my heart is clean, my hands are pure. Who of us is going to sing that? But that's the standard. And all of us, some of you will think, you'll be here and you'll be going, oh, you know this, I shouldn't even be here. I'm so much worse than everybody else. I'm sorry, you haven't a clue what everybody else is like. I don't know. I'm not even sure I know what I'm like. And I certainly don't want you to know. I've been reading Chrysostom just now, which is where that quote came from. And he's arguing about why he shouldn't be a, a, a priest, a minister, or a bishop, or whatever you want to call them. And he's saying, if you knew how bad I was, I can't go near the church of Christ with what's in my heart. But that's what made him a great preacher, because he had the humility to actually recognize that. So... Does the law then become death? Is God offering life with one hand, but creating death with another? Go on to verse 13, I think. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. It seems like God is playing a trick. Because he says, Leviticus 18.5, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Paul in Romans 10.5 again quotes that verse. The person who does these things will live by them. But the radical teaching of Jesus and the radical teaching of the Bible is do them and you'll live, but you can't. 
And it just seems like a horrible trick. Why doesn't God give us things to do that we can do? And the answer is because we cannot be saved by doing things and we cannot be saved by works and we cannot be saved by the law. But we can be made aware of our need of salvation from the law. We can't. We're helpless. Here's the irony. You could be sitting here right now and in abject misery because you are so aware of your own sin. You feel that you are not worthy. You feel you don't belong here. You feel you can't do anything. You're dreading the next word that comes from my lips that tells you to do something because you think, I can't. And you could be in a much better position than most people here because that's actually the position of all of us. I'll give you an example of this. Um, and it's a, it's a personal one. I was, when I was in hospital, um, I'm, I can be quite a confident person at times. You know, I feel in a previous life I was American. I can do it. You know, <laughs> I can do it. I've got the power. You know, um, you know make Dundee great again. I can, you know, <laughs> I could do it. And uh, I was told, I was went sent for physio. And the chief physio said, oh, I'm, you're my patient. I'm taking you on because you're a really difficult case. I said, no, I'm not difficult. I'll be fine. I'm going to get out of here. And, you know, and she said, okay. You know, here, we've got another cocky one. And she was right. Um, but I said, no, no, honestly, this just, we'll get this done and I can go home soon. And she said, okay, stand you up in this machine. You think you can walk? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to. It won't take me long. I said, I want you to walk to the end of this room. And I'm in, I'm in this big machine with straps and stuff. And I said, can we get rid of the machine? She said, no, no, no sticks, no chair, no nothing. Just use this machine. Let's see if you can do it. I thought, of course I can do it. My mind was telling me I could do it. Unfortunately, my legs didn't obey my mind, or my legs were not capable of obeying my mind. So she gave me really hard stuff to do, or easy stuff to do, actually, for a normal person. I couldn't do it. And it was so, I was, in, oh, it was so despairing. And she says, that's why you're here. We're here, to, you're here, so that we can help you walk again. And I guess, I'm, I guess I was just proud. I just wanted to thought, I'll, I'll just recover myself. Well, what do I need a physio for? You know, there are some of us who are like that. Well, that's the same with this. What do I need a savior for? Why do I need forgiven? There's a few things wrong with my life. I'll sort them out. Don't worry, I'll get there. But the law exposes that. The law does not cause death. Sin does. If you go to jail for breaking into someone's house, it's the law that sends you to death. Sends you to, no, not to death. We haven't got the death penalty yet for breaking into houses. But if, uh, just as well, in Dundee anyway, um, be a big population decrease. The law says you're going to jail. But you're not going to jail because of the law. You're not going to jail because of the judge. You're not going to jail because of the policeman that caught you. You're going to jail because you sinned and you did something wrong. So Paul's point is straightforward. The law is good. It shows the nature and the holiness and the character of God. We should not reject the law. The problem is sin. And the law does not deal with sin or provide the solution for sin. All that the law does is make me realize what sin really is. So how do we deal with sin? How can we deal with our sin? Well, one way is simply to say it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as sin. Enjoy life the way that we are. You know, I'm, I'm utterly astounded to continually receive messages 
from evangelical Christian groups saying God loves us and accepts us just the way we are and God wants you to be who you were created to be and all this kind of stuff. And it's absolute rubbish. God loves us despite who we are. And God does want to change us, all of us. He wants to change us to be more like Christ. When people say, enjoy life, just be what you are, but what if what you are is that you're a sinner? You're created in God's image, beautiful, but you're ugly as well. You're good, yet there's a badness within. And we feel that sometimes. And I think when we do feel it, it's possibly not a bad thing that we feel that. It's just a lie to say that our sin does not exist. But it's also not helpful and a lie when we get teaching of God's law which does not save us and just brings greater condemnation. Legalism of any sort, religious legalism or or different types of legalism. Keep the law and you shall live. Now even in today's church there are plenty of people who will deny the cross and they will deny what Jesus has done and they will they will say well we don't want that because that's all just legalism we but if you go to any of these churches where they have what's called a liberal theology all that you'll hear in that church is go and do this don't be racist don't be homophobic help the poor do this do this do this and they just pile it on and it never ever deals with the real heart problem or you may get a different kind of, of legalism, can kind of more pharisaical, where people may sound very orthodox in the theology, but they're still saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to not do this, and you've got to not do that. And it just piles it on. But what Paul does in Romans is he tells us about God and his law and his holiness. We hear God's law. It makes us aware of sin. Sometimes it stirs up sin within us. That sin leads to death. But there can be a good death. There's going to be a death to the law, a death to self, and a death that leads to resurrection. The Spirit comes and convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and the judgment to come. It's almost impossible, isn't it, to ask someone to come and hear about a Savior who doesn't need salvation. Why would they come? Why would you go to the hospital if you're not sick? Well, that's why we pray that God's Spirit will we'll never ever convict people. There's no point going around to people and telling them they're sinners and, and yelling at them. And, you know, I'm sorry, but walking down the street with a placard saying, Repent for the end is nigh, or turn or burn or whatever, I'm sorry, but that's just nonsensical in terms of the gospel. That's people who don't understand what's really got to happen. The Holy Spirit has to convict. And I think one of the most extraordinary things I will pray for you guys in Charleston is that there will be a real desperate sense of of need, not just a physical need, not just of the needs of poverty and the needs of deliverance from addiction, but just the need for deliverance from the sin that's within our own hearts. We pray that for all of us. And that good death, that death to self, that death to the law, that death to salvation by works comes through Jesus. And this is a a verse that I just absolutely love, or two verses. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
See, if you don't know the gospel, you don't get to teach that and you don't get to know that. But this is absolutely wonderful. You're dead. Dead as the people in that graveyard. Dead in sins. How do we reach the people in Charleston? Same way you reach the people in Broughty Ferry. I am... Um, President Trump is in Scotland next weekend. So I've invited him to come. Um, but imagine he did. You know, I came here. He'd be treated exactly the same as any other sinner. Which is all of us. We don't divide the world into the good and the bad. We all need that salvation. You're dead in your sins. But what happened? You weren't dead and lying there going, I'm dead, but I think it's time I came alive. Obviously, that's a ridiculous image. That's the point of what's being said. God made you alive. And that's why there's nothing I can say or do at this wedding or in Charleston or, what, or you can say that it's going to make people Christians, but God makes people alive. How does he do that? He does that through his word, through the spirit working through his word. That's why you can have absolute confidence that God will be at work. He forgave us all our sins. And again, just know that. You're here this morning. You're saying, oh, law, sin, death. I don't need to hear that. You do, because you need to hear that all your sins are forgiven. Not some, not the ones, just the ones you've confessed, not just the ones in the past, but all your sins, past, present, and future. And if you say, I'm a sinner, so God can't forgive me, what are you saying? You arguing with God? You can argue with me, that's fine. But are you arguing with God? He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. In other words, here's the law that goes against you. What did Jesus do? He went and he nailed it to the cross because he was nailed to the cross. So the law that condemned you, that law itself is nailed to the cross. So when Satan comes and says and whispers in your own heart or when your own heart condemns you and you go, I'm guilty, I'm terrible. Yeah, but Jesus nailed that to the cross. You're free. You may not feel it, but you're free because that's what it says. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So you see, you've got two different religions here. You've got a religion which says, do this, do this, do this, do this, be nice, fulfill all, or at least some, and you'll be okay. And you've got another religion, the real Christianity, which says you can pray till the cows come home. You can read your Bible non-stop. You can go to church every minute of every day. You can do as many good works as possible. You won't ever be able to deal with the sin that's in your heart. All you'll find is more condemnation. But, and we will come on to this in, in, in Romans chapter 8, because all of this is leading up to this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Oh, but how do I know I'm in Christ? How do I? Look, don't play that game. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Is your trust in him and not in yourself? Then you're in Christ. And if you don't believe that, you're not in Christ. Don't look for ways to condemn you. The law condemned you. You don't need to do it. And the law's been nailed to the cross. I'm going to sing in a moment. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure cleanse me of its guilt and power I love that, that double cure it's just what we get offered in the world is a single cure and it's not even a real cure but this is a double cure 
Christ does that. The law which exposes your sin and condemns you is nailed to the cross. Your sin is nailed to the cross. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is the good news. And this is the gospel. And you know this, as a Christian, those of you who are Christians, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day because you keep forgetting it and you don't realize just how good it really, really is. And if you are not a Christian, I'm telling you this, sell everything you have, give up absolutely everything to know the Jesus who does this because there's nothing that you've got that comes within a million miles of the beauty and the wonder of this. You don't need religion, but you do need Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. Thank you that you gave us your law, which shows your standards. It's holy and righteous and pure. And yet all of us, when we look at the mirror of your word, we are found to be guilty. And we would despair, and indeed the evil one causes us to despair, and our hearts cause us to despair until we lift our eyes above the waves and see Jesus. O Lord, grant that each person here would see and know Jesus. For we ask it in your name. Amen. I'm going to finish by singing that song, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee. Let's stand and sing, and please remain standing for the benediction.